Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading the Bible to us today. We've got two readings today. First one's in um, Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14, and that is on page 15, if you've got the blue Bibles. Um, and then we'll be flicking over to um, Joshua, chapter 5, and that's on page 217. So um, we'll start with Genesis, and it will also um, come up on the screen as I'm reading. So Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between you and me, and we will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. And now we'll flip over to Joshua, and Joshua chapter 5, starting on page 216. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all of the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites... Until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that had come out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land, and he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey." So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, 
Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. They were no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. If you'd like to keep your Bibles open at Joshua 5, and in the booklet, um, I'll reveal an outline as I go so that you can write it in if you want to. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Meredith and I watched one of the latest films on the life of Winston Churchill, who was Minister of Britain, of course, in World War II. It was just called Churchill. There have been a couple of films recently. Um, And this film was set in the final days um, before D-Day in uh, 1944. One of the themes that runs throughout the film is the difficulty Churchill found in approving the D-Day strike um, because of the potential loss of Allied lives, especially considering some of the disastrous campaigns that had occurred in World War I. It sort of made me ponder once again, as I've done several times before, how privileged I am uh, to be a baby boomer, a post-war baby. And how privileged are all of us really here, following on from me in Australia, who followed that great and terrible war. After such a terrible loss of life, we really enjoyed what I'd call, for sure, a fresh start. And... For the most part, that has been one of the most prosperous in human history. Sometimes it's good to take a moment to ponder and to remember our place in history. And I think that's what's actually happening. Something like that is what's actually happening for us in our passage in Joshua 5 today. The momentous events that we saw last week in chapters 3 and 4, the crossing of uh, the Jordan uh, River through a display of the awesome power of God leads to a pause for a time of reflection and preparation. It's somewhat unexpected. Uh, We might have expected now that they've crossed the River Jordan um, that chapter 6 would follow straight on with the conquering of Jericho, which we'll see next week. But instead, the narrative pauses to take part in two important religious rituals for Israel. And this is no idle addition. In fact, I want to suggest that this little episode, these 12 verses, is critical, really critical, to set up the rest of the book of Joshua and how Israel will take the land. Now, I've maintained a title in your booklet, but I've added a subtitle to indicate its drift. So this morning's passage is really about remembering God's promises, a fresh start for a new beginning. Now, let's not forget that the wilderness wandering over 40 years 
that's occurred before has witnessed the death of thousands of people over a long period of time, just wandering around in the desert. People whose dreams of inheriting the promise of God gave to Abraham, as we saw in Genesis 17, were shattered because of a failure to trust God. Everyone over the age of 19, except for Joshua and Caleb and probably their families, experienced the judgment of God and died in the desert. But over those 40 years, a whole new generation had been born and grown up. All of them as a nation had miraculously crossed the River Jordan and now camped in the Promised Land. One might have thought that uh, in some ways this was a vulnerable time for them, for the Israelites. The cities of Canaan, there are a number of sort of city-states, if you like, in Canaan, that are well-equipped, well-armed, had soldiers, etc. Might have been a good time to strike. But that is why the passage begins, I think, in verse 1, when it says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast, heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed the river, their hearts melted in fear. And they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. The display, you see, of God's awesome power to move the people across the Jordan had totally deflated the Canaanite kings. They were so discouraged they no longer had the stomach to face the Israelites. And just as an aside, friends, but an important aside, there are legitimate times to be afraid. And one of those is to be afraid of God's judgment. If you don't belong to God, then God's judgment is coming. It's an absolute certainty. And as Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is not some manipulative scaremongering, but it is God's legitimate truth. Well, this display then of God's power, which... Uh, deflates the kings of Canaan gives rise to a time to pause time to reflect to remember the promises of God fulfilled now uh, at least in embryonic form and prepare for the campaign to come to take the whole land and there are important things that need to occur before to prepare for the campaign to come God had kept his covenant promise it was now time before the Israelites proceeded in battle to seek a covenant response from the people. This came from through the reintroduction of two key rituals that set Israel apart as God's people, those of circumcision and the Passover. We'll spend most of our time on the first of these because that's what the text does, spends its time there. This reintroduction of the rite of circumcision into Israelite life I think should be seen as a renewing of the covenant mark. Verse 2 says, Now um, at at that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites of Gibeoth Haraloth. 
these two words, give me this harrow off a funny sort of thing. We're not sure whether they're an actual place. If it is, we don't know where. Or whether they're just a way of describing what happened where they were. Since the translation of these two words, believe it or not, is hill of foreskins. Certainly a rather graphic way of describing uh, what occurred. So if you look at a few different translations of this um, of this verse, you'll see some go as the NIV does, conservatively, you know, Gibeath, Haraloth, and others just translate it as hill of foreskins. Regardless though, we should take note that Israel was not the only people who practiced circumcision in those days. It was quite common among several other nations uh, that circumcision was practiced and even amongst some of the Canaanite nations. So it was not circumcision itself, you see, that was unique to Israel. It was the fact that God made circumcision a physical mark of the covenant with his people that made it unique. Not the one I would have chosen. Just gives me anxieties every time I read this episode. (laughs) But it is the one that God chose. This is why we read Genesis 17 earlier, where God first set its practice in place. God promises Abraham to establish the covenant with him and his descendants, giving them the whole land of Canaan. And then, just to repeat, we read in verses 9 to 11, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was a physical sign, a mark that identified the people of God and a commitment to keep his covenant and follow him. Now if you ask as some uh, do today as to why it was just a male mark, I can put it that way, then I think all we can say, since we're not really told, is that the cult- in the culture of the times, males represented their families and in some sense determined their destiny a bit later on when we see one of the unfortunate instances that happened in Joshua. Um, it's the sin of the father, the male, that actually determines the fate of the whole family. In this context we can begin to see why it was so important to make sure that all the new generation of men who had crossed the Jordan were circumcised. It represented three important things, I think. First, it represented the end of covenant rebellion. Look at verses 4 to 7. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about the wilderness 40 years until the men who were of military age when they had left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them they would not see the land. He had, he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. 
Now, why weren't the generation born in the wilderness circumcised along the way? They could have been. There was no reason why that couldn't have happened as they were born and been circumcised. There was nothing preventing this from happening. I think we must assume that the whole wilderness wandering, this whole period of time over 40 years, represented um, punishment for covenant rebellion. Verse 6 especially notes that uh, these military men died because of their disobedience. Yes, God was merciful and still provided manna for them to eat over this time in the desert since you couldn't grow anything there. But it still was a time of separation, of distance in the relationship with God because of rebellion and a failure to trust to trust God that he would keep his covenant promise. However, with the crossing of the Jordan and the new generation of people, the end of that period of rebellion had come. God had been true to his promise. The people had entered the land. The rest of the book of Joshua will show how they take the land over. On the positive side, the second important thing the circumcision represented was the renewal of covenant obedience simply represented by verse 8. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. So verse 8 simply records the obedience of the nation to once again be marked out as God's people and dedicated to obeying his voice. For this new generation, it marked their commitment to following God once again and trusting him to go before them to fulfil his covenant promise to them. Circumcision in the flesh would once again be the sign of a circumcision of the heart. The outward mark in the flesh was always meant to indicate the inward devotion to God. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, it commands uh, God's people to circumcise their hearts. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans 2, 28 and 29 says this, A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit and not the written code. And this leads us, you see, to how circumcision came to be discarded and no longer necessary for God's people today. It was only for a time, the time of God's covenant with Israel. But of course God's promise to Abraham was far wider than simply Israel possessing the promised land. If you like, that was part one. Through Abraham and his descendants, God told him, the nation of Israel, all the peoples of the world would be blessed and we know now that that happened through the coming of the Lord Jesus. God's promise to Abraham would begin with Israel, then narrow down to the one true Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then extend outward to all peoples of the earth. So for us, friends, what matters today is the state of the heart and the devotion to the Lord Jesus. Paul makes this again fundamentally clear 
in Galatians 6, 14 and 15 when he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. And unfortunately, the history of the church has shown, though, that just as the wilderness generation were all circumcised, remember, they were all circumcised, but their hearts were not. So it's possible today to give the appearance of Christian faith when the reality of the heart is elsewhere. So this passage today should challenge us once again to ponder the state of our own heart. What matters most is not how involved you are or appear to be in church life, but whether such involvement truly arises from a heart that loves the Lord, that trusts in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and seeks humbly to serve him in the different aspects of our daily lives. I think I've told you before, um, about uh, the saddest thing I experienced in ministry in the church plant of which I was a pastor in Sydney was a young couple who seemed so thoroughly converted. I would have put my life savings on it. And they were involved in everything in the church over a period of a couple of years but then gradually began to drift away and completely I lost contact with them. Um, But during that time I discovered that their hearts seemed to, in the end, trust in some form of works righteousness because of what they did in the church and in Jesus' death and resurrection. Where is your heart today? Does your commitment to new covenant faith and devotion to Jesus need renewing, need pondering? Maybe through prayer and asking God to renew your heart or a new commitment to reading his word and finding out exactly how he wants you to live and to do with your life. It's important stuff. Before we come to the end of this section on circumcision, however, there is a third aspect to what this reintroduction of circumcision represents. I've called it the end of covenant shame. Just have a look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Now, it's not immediately obvious what this reproach is, but because it's called the reproach of Egypt, it probably refers to some sort of scorn heaped on the wilderness generation because Israel's God had failed to deliver on his promise. And we see the possibility of such scorn um, in some of Moses' prayers where God threatens to wipe out the whole nation. For example, in Exodus 32, 
when God threatened to destroy Israel because of their idolatry in making and worshipping a golden calf, Moses pleads with God in verse 12 like this. Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, God brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. And again later in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 28, when Moses refers to the failure of the Israelites to trust God to go into the land of Canaan, he pleaded with God not to destroy them completely. Otherwise, he says, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land that he had promised them and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So when God says he rolled away, he's rolled away the reproach of Egypt, it's most likely that he means Israel's covenant shame. The shame poured upon them as they wandered around the wilderness as if God had not been able to deliver on his promise. That's the way it would have appeared. But now that shame had ended. All in Egypt, all the Amorite kings, all the Canaanite kings now knew that the God of Israel is powerful and had delivered exactly what he had promised. Their hearts had melted in fear. Covenant shame had now turned to covenant vindication. Is it really any different for us as God's people today as we seek to follow Christ? Ridicule and reproach are often the lot of the follower of Jesus in a world where people are confident of human ingenuity or progress or intelligence. I remember many years ago when I was first just a young Christian and uh, I was doing an honours year among the educated elite at university being told that my Christian faith was just a crutch for those who couldn't make it under their own steam. I don't think things have changed. If anything, such scorn has only been made more popular by public figures and books from people like Richard Dawkins, the God delusion. And I'm sure you could add your own story if I asked you. But just as God has vindicated the suffering and scorn, Jesus knew by raising him from the dead, now ascended to be King of kings, Lord of lords, so he will do for his people in the meantime. He will do it. But in the meantime, we probably need to take note of the instruction of 1 Peter 3. Peter says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And they certainly will be one day. Now, I've taken some time 
this morning on this first covenant rite of circumcision, mainly because, as I said, that's where the emphasis in the text lies. But there is, of course, a second very important ceremony that is renewed at this point as well, that of the Passover. I'll deal with that a bit more swiftly. If circumcision was about renewing the covenant mark, Passover is about celebrating the covenant meal. Hmm, I shouldn't have that second one there yet, but anyway, just ignore that. Um, in verse 10, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Passover, of course, commemorates God's action in rescuing the Israelites from the slavery they endured under the hand of the Egyptians. Exodus 12 tells us of that event. On that terrible night, the Israelites sacrificed lambs and put blood, the blood of the sacrifice over the doorposts so that the, their firstborn children would not be killed as all those were going to be in Egypt. It was the first great act of God to bring about Israelite freedom, salvation and the fulfilment of God's promise uh, to bring the Israelites into the promised land. And after the initial Passover feast though, the Israelites had celebrated it only once more. So it was the original one, once more at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, but it was never again celebrated again in the wilderness wanderings at all. But now, with a new, faithful and obedient generation, it takes place as a memorial to God's act of redemption. And so it becomes a way of what I've got there, remembering God's great act of salvation. We're told it's celebrated on the 14th day of the month. And that, in fact, is um, what the law prescribed. It's another indication here that the new of the obedience of the new generation in following what God had prescribed. It's also, in one sense, an incredible miracle of timing because God had actually brought them over the Jordan at the exact time uh, to be able to celebrate the Passover when the law required here. In this context, however, the Passover not only was an act of remembering God's great act of salvation, it served also to anticipate the blessings that would be theirs now they are in the promised land. You see, that is the significance of the reference to the ceasing of the manna and the eating of the produce of the land. This celebration of the Passover, you see, not only celebrated God's action in salvation of Israel, but also anticipated partaking in the covenant blessing. The fact that the manna had ceased the day after Passover indicates once again that the era of the wilderness wandering had ended. Now the people would enjoy the fruits of the completion of God's promise, the blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. The Passover, of course, became the pivotal celebration throughout the Old Testament of God's salvation of Israel. But when the Lord Jesus came and paid the ultimate price 
on the cross to provide the forgiveness of sins and new life to people of every tribe and nation who put their trust in him. He, if you like, re-engineered the Passover to commemorate his death on the cross and what we now call the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. So in Luke 22, 19 and 20, when Jesus was eating the Passover with his disciples, we read, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so now we who are circumcised of heart through the Spirit of God celebrate and remember the great act of sacrifice that has brought about our salvation from among all peoples. And we too partake in new covenant blessings as we await the return of Jesus and an eternity of bliss with him forever. The New Testament describes uh, these blessings in various ways. There are lots of them. From the fact as described in Romans 8, 1, where it says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which results in a new and intimate relationship with God, direct communication in prayer, being able to call God Abba, Father. Or from the wonderful gift of God's spirit to strengthen our devotion to godly life, to the fellowship of God's people here today, to comfort, encourage and share our gifts with one another. It's easy to forget what wonderful blessings we enjoy as a result of being participants in the new covenant and the new covenant meal that is the Lord's Supper. So today, friends, Israel pauses to remember, to reflect, to rededicate themselves to God's covenant promise as they anticipate its completion in the days to come. A fresh start for a new beginning. It's good for us to take the opportunity to do the same, to pause and examine the state of our heart, to renew our devotion to new covenant faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also to give thanks for the wonderful covenant blessings we enjoy as a fellowship of God's people. And as we anticipate with absolute certainty the completion of all God's promises at the return of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this passage today in Joshua 5. We want to thank you um, that it shows how you renewed your people, how you rolled away the scorn that must have been theirs when the nations around saw them wandering around in the wilderness. but how you came through and delivered your promise. And then through these rituals of circumcision and Passover, renewed their hearts 
and their devotion to you. We pray as that we know how those have now come through in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that you would do the same for us. That our devotion to you might be real and true and from the heart and not merely in appearance for the sake of others. We thank you for Jesus' renewed and re-engineered Passover in the Lord's Supper. And we thank you for the wonderful blessings that we enjoy here today as a fellowship of your people. We pray that you may always help us uh, to remember that it's absolutely certain that Jesus will return and take us to be with him. And in the light of that, we may, as a church and as each individual, be dedicated to serve him in this day until that day. And we ask it in Jesus' name.